0: Luke 22, starting in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, uh, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until uh, until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I send you out with no money bag or or knapsack or sandals, uh, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord. Here are two swords, and he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he had come to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, And looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we ask that your word would challenge us. We want your word to challenge us. We want to be stretched because we want to know you. You are so much bigger than we are, so much wiser, so much holier. And so as we study your holy word, we pray that your spirit would work in us and apply it to our lives and that you would draw us to you in faith, that we would trust you, that we would obey you because we love you and because we know all that Jesus has done for us and that even in this passage as he suffered agony, and he went to the cross and was betrayed and was arrested. And um, because of his great love, um, would you give us uh, hearts that are committed to your word? And so uh, bless this time now. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're talking about this morning the, the topic of the will of God, which is one of the the most uh, the biggest paradox paradoxical topics that the Bible addresses and I, you know, I've been reading a book recently called The Nation of Heretics which is actually a, a book about American religion a history of American religion and especially within the last century and one of the things that the author points out about Christianity in general historically is that Christians have always said that the foundation of our faith the main things that we believe are paradoxes they're things that seem to be uh, contradictory so for example you know, the fundamental Christian belief about God is that God is one God, and yet there's three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God is both three and one. It's a paradox. Can you explain it? I can't explain it. But well, that's what we believe. or that Jesus is fully man, and he's fully God. He's both. Or that the cross, uh, the cross of Jesus was the picture of God's wrath against sin. The greatest picture of God's wrath. This is what God thinks of sin. This terrible wrath. And yet it's also the offer of sinners to come and be, find grace and be forgiven. It's a paradox. Or even, uh, you know, that the way that we're made right with God is just by free grace. There's nothing you can do to earn God's approval. It's something that you can only have received by faith. It's by grace. And yet, um, God demands of us obedience. He demands our whole life. And that if you have true faith, then it will show up in good works in your life. And so there's this paradox that we hold these two things together... And uh, that when we really come to who God is, we find that there's something we can't comprehend, a God that we can't comprehend. And that's what you'd expect, right? Wouldn't you expect that the creator of the universe, creator of all things, the real God, that when you really found him, wouldn't you expect that there'd be a a paradox at the heart of it? And, you know, it's interesting, as you look at, uh, throughout history, at, Um, Various religions that were heresies, you know, Christian heresies, which are kind of things that uh, religions that were kind of loosely tied to Christianity but were not Christianity. What they're always trying to do is resolve the paradox. I want to understand God. I want a God that I can understand. So you look at Islam, uh, and Islam, which is came out of Christianity, it's a Christian heresy. Said uh, God is one. You can't have three gods and one God. God is only one. Jesus is a he's a very good prophet. We think he's a great man. But listen, you can't have three gods and one God. So you can't have both. So there's one God, and, and so we want to resolve the heresy. And you know, actually Mormonism kind of goes the other way and says you can't have three gods and one God. So Jesus is a God, and the Father is a God, and you can become a God too. And um, the goal is to make God someone that we can comprehend and that we can understand. And whenever you do that, you, you walk away from the truth. Because at the heart of who God is, is a paradox. Now, the reason I tell you this is because um, on the topic of the will of God is one of the most important paradoxes in the Bible. Because the Bible tells us that everything that will ever happen in history, everything that has happened and will happen, has been foreordained by God. God has, uh, is sovereign over all things. Both things good and bad, we are living in a story that God is writing. God is the one who is writing this story. He's, at the end of the day, who makes the decision of what happens in history? It's God. And yet at the same time, the Bible says that we are responsible human beings, that he gives us commands. He says, I command you to believe. I command you to obey me. I command, I command you to pray, to ask me to, you know, change the course of the way things are going in your life. There's this paradox, these two things that seem like they don't go together. How can... God be orchestrating everything and writing the story and tell us to pray and to obey him and give us commands and have us be responsible human beings. They're both true. And, uh, and so you see that there's, in some ways, two kinds of the will of God. There's God's sovereign will, and where he has willed everything that's going to happen in the world, and then there's his revealed will. Where he's told us, this is how I want you to live. This is what I expect from people. This is how I want humanity to treat each other. I I want you to love each other. I want you to believe. I want you to pray. I want you to be kind. That's his revealed will. And and there's these two wills. And actually, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 kind of puts these two things together. Where it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Secret things. That's his sovereign will. But the things that are revealed. That's his revealed will belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so uh, we as Christians are called to live in a tension between believing that God has already orchestrated everything that's going to happen, everything in my life, everything that will happen, and yet he's called me to believe and obey. And I'll tell you, right now, in our culture, there is a tend- there's a desire, even in the church, to resolve this tension. And may- you know, maybe you've experienced this, but there's a big emphasis in the church is... I want to know God's secret will for my life. And if I can know what God's secret will is, his secret plan for my life, then I'll be happy. And I can, uh, if I can line up my life with the secret will that he has, maybe the secret will, I can know it. Where well, the Bible says, no, it's his secret will. <laughs> it's his will. And maybe I can know it. I can know the plans. I can know the things that, he, that, that are going to happen to me. And, it, um, and then I can kind of know my fortune and I can line my life up with it. And the desire for that is, um, is basically that what we're saying is, God, tell me the future so that I don't have to trust you. Why do we want to know God's will? Why do we want God to tell us who we should marry or what job we should have or what major we should have or where we should live? We're praying and we're praying and we're praying, God, show me which one I should do. We want him to tell us. Why? It's because then we don't have to trust him. We know what the future is. Tell me what your plan is so that I can feel in control. And the fact is that we live in a world that's very unpredictable. Um, things are unsettling. We don't, uh, we don't know how things are going to happen. And we say, well, if God will just tell me what's going to happen in the future, then I can feel some, a sense of control. And this may be shocking to you, but that idea that God has a secret plan that he wants to reveal to me about my life is actually more of a pagan idea than a Christian idea. And that's what, you know, pagans have omens and signs and they have fortune tellers, people trying to tell them the future so that they can feel in control of their life. And the reason that this connects with the passage that I just read to you is that so far in the Gospels, Jesus has been very sure of himself. You know he has all kinds of conflicts. He has all kinds of threats, and he's just unflinching. He's confident. He speaks his mind. He takes on. uh, You you want to follow him? He's confident. He knows what he's doing. And now we come to a part of the where really all things are falling apart. He's in agony as he's praying in the garden. He has his best friend Peter, who uh, who denies him three times and says, "I don't even know the guy." One of the 12 of the disciples, Judas, has betrayed him and given him over to authorities to be arrested so that he'll ultimately be crucified. And then he's going and he's praying before his father. And he says, Father, if there's any way all this doesn't have to happen to me, if you can pass this cup some some other way, that I don't have to go to the cross. And he finds out that the father says no. And he's in agony. And so all these things are falling apart. And but what we see is that Jesus prays this prayer in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. It's one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible about the will of God and what Jesus is doing here is he's holding together these two things, a trust in the sovereign will of God, that God is orchestrating all things, and an obedience to the revealed will. And here we find that the paradox that is wedded together in Jesus, these two things that don't seem to go together, Jesus weds them together. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at each of these things. What does it mean to trust in the sovereign will of God? And secondly... What does it mean to obey the revealed will? And how do these things fit together? And how do they fit together in Jesus? Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. Um, Heavy topic. Okay? Uh, But important. Okay? So um, really interesting things here. So first of all, uh, God calls us to trust in the sovereign will of God. And uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which was a a confession of faith that was written in the 16th century, uh, one of the paragraphs... It describes the sovereign will of God this way. It says, The Almighty, and everywhere present power of God, upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and, and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We are not living in a world of chance where uh, random forces are just uh, forcing us into things that are out of control. But everything comes from the hand of God. And, um, you know, almost all of us, when we think about God's sovereignty, his sovereign will, when good things happen, we want to say, God was in it. He was all over it. He's been blessing this. He's in it. There he is. But it's much harder for us. Uh, the question of when bad things are happening—the things that we don't want in the world—we and we say, "Well, that's not—that can't be God's will. That's not what's not what's happening." And um, but the Bible tells us that even the evil things, even the bad things, even the wicked things, even the broken things that are happening in the in the world, are all a part of God's orchestration in the story that He's writing. And I want to show you that in two ways in this passage. That first of all. And some of this is going to be shocking to some of you, but um, bear with me, okay? Follow me through this. First, that God has ordained the evil of others. God has ordained the evil of others. Now, we read this famous line in verse 47 where it says, While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? With a kiss. And what this is, this is an episode, this is the great crime of all human history. It is the great injustice that, uh, you know, you take everything evil that men could ever do, it's happening right here. That Jesus comes, he comes as a savior, and he, he's like, I wanna welcome you, I wanna forgive you, I wanna welcome sinners, I wanna be a savior to you. And what does humanity do? Betrayal, uh, injustice, he's crucified, he's arrested. He's mistreated. He's lied about. I mean, anything that you can imagine that's evil uh, about humanity is happening to Jesus right now. It is entirely unjust. And what we see is that, um, that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now, some of you uh, have been betrayed by someone that's close to you. You've had a friend that you trusted. You thought you knew who they were. And they've turned their back on you. They've done something wrong to you. And you know that that pain was way worse than someone that you didn't even know. You know, I, you know. You think of it, if we're a church here, and if if you came up to me, and uh, this is your first time here, you came up to me and you said, you know, this church is lame. I'm never coming back. See ya. And I'd never met you before. I'd say, wow, ouch, all right, I'll get over it. Okay, you know, but if you, you know, if you'd been a part of this, I, I knew you, uh, and and you just without even talking to me or, or talk, talking to someone else, just came and said, "Hey, I, I hate you guys. I'm out of here." What's going to hurt more? A relationship that that has been sustained for a long time and that where we have built trust and, and put our hearts to one, given our hearts to one another, and that's ripped apart, or someone that you don't even know? This is this, this kiss is uh, Judas is using his friendship to betray Jesus. He's been walking with, for, walking with him for three years. Jesus has been pouring into him. And Judas says, I'm going to give you over to be crucified. And so everything evil um, about humanity is happening to Jesus right here. But if you remember last week at the Lord's Supper, we talked about the Lord's Supper. There was this line in there in, uh, where Jesus said to Judas, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see the paradox there. Jesus says that this crime, the great crime, the worst thing that's ever happened in humanity, the the biggest injustice that's ever happened, this innocent man's being handed over and betrayed, Jesus says this was determined by God. It was written by God. It was planned by God. And yet he says, woe to the man by whom it comes. He's responsible. Uh, Judas is responsible And what that means is that even this great crime is according to the will of God. Now, um, let me say to you, uh, some of you have had terrible things happen to you. You've had people who've done terrible things to you. You know loved ones of yours who've gone through terrible tragedy. And one of the biggest questions that you have asked is, where was God in all that? And I tell you this, this, I say this with trembling to you. God was there. God was there, and he could have stopped it. And he didn't. And even more than that, he willed it to be so. He wrote that episode into your life. He is sovereign over all things. And you might say, how could, God, how could God do that? How could you say, how dare you say that? How dare you say God was in that episode? That he willed that. That he wouldn't have stopped it. And let me just tell you that there's a trite way to say to people, you know, when someone's going through a tragedy, you say, oh, you know, God's going to work all things for good. If you love him, he works all things for good. It's all going to work out, which is, can be used as a way to say, listen, I don't want to enter into your hurt. I don't want to deal with the pain and the mess and the tragedy and the confusion. I, I, can I just separate it from him? I'll say everything's okay. I'll put a Band-Aid on it. There's a way to do that that's trite. But the reality is, as we face the evil of the world, the Bible tells us, that ultimately God is secretly working things according to his sovereign purposes, which are good. And this is what uh, St. Augustine says, God would never permit evil if he could not bring good out of evil. Let me just tell you that for most of us, most of the tragedies that we see in our life, you will not be able to see where the good is in it. You may later, but many of them, You will not see where it's good. You will not see how God could have let this happen. But the foundation is that uh, we have to, you know, as we ask that question, why? Why did God let this happen? Why did God let the crime happen? Why did God let the injustice happen? Why did God let the hurt happen? He doesn't tell us. You know, maybe we couldn't understand it if he could tell us. But we do know that we can trust him. We do, he does tell us why he can trust him. Because one of the things that, that the Bible tells us is that even though the, you know, God is willing all of this injustice in the world, there's no hurt, there's no tragedy that happens in the world that God himself has not experienced. Because you look at Jesus, what's happened to him? Physical pain, physical suffering in the world? Jesus was crucified. He was uh, whipped, in, uh, his back was ripped up, he was beaten, um, and he was nailed to a cross. He, he's, God has experienced physical suffering. Look at economic poverty. Jesus was poor his whole life. He didn't have a house, he didn't have any place to live. Uh, G, social suffering. Um, look at Jesus betrayed by his best friend. You know any, any of you who've been betrayed? And you say how could how could that ever happen? God has been betrayed too, and even spiritual suffering. Here is Jesus who's had his father forsake him and turn away. Uh, Turn away from him. Jesus has felt what it is to be forsaken by God. And so what that means is that how could God determine such pain for me? All we know is that God also determined it for himself. The pain that he wrote into your story, he wrote into his own story. There is nothing that he has willed for you to suffer that he has not himself suffered and war. And so that what that means is that doesn't tell us why, but it tells us this is a God we can trust. He's not distant and away from the suffering, and saying, "Oh, you're going to suffer, you're going to have tragedies." Well, fine. No, He's in it with us. And the fact is, the other the other answer to why can we trust Him is we really have two options. How are you going to view the evil in the world? It's either that there are forces that are beyond God that are just running their course on you, and uh, you could die at any second, you you could suffer at any second, and it would all be meaningless. And there's some power greater than God that doesn't love you, that doesn't feel, that's running the earth, or there's a loving God who is somehow orchestrating all things for good. That's the hope of the Bible. And so as we come to the will of God, one of the things that this story of Jesus' betrayal says is that it is our calling to trust in the sovereign will of God. And that even evil, if we don't even understand it, God will work for good for those who love him. That's not trite. At the end of the day, we have to hold on to that, okay? But second... God's sovereignty ordains the evil of others, but also God uses even our own sins for our own good. God uses even our own sins for our own good. This is a part of his sovereignty as well. So, you know, you look at at Peter, this passage that we just read, if you'll notice, the first paragraph that I read was about Jesus talking about... Uh, Peter's denial. He says, you're going to deny me, and, the, and then the, ro- the rooster's going to crow, and then at the end of the passage, it happens. Uh, Peter actually denies him. And, you know, Peter's been walking with Jesus. G- Peter's his best friend. Uh, they've been walking together for three years. He's seen all kinds of things that, it, that has happened. He's been taught by, by Jesus. Um, he's, uh, he's been in Jesus' closest confidence. And he's telling Jesus, I'm with you. I'm with you no matter what. You know, you even see that there in uh, verse 33. Uh, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's making vows and promises to Jesus. Um, and then he denies him three times. People ask him, do you know him? He said, I don't even know the guy. I don't. What are you talking about? I, I don't even know him. He distances himself from Jesus. And... Um, And what's interesting is that in verse 31, Jesus predicted that this would happen. Jesus was going to be abandoned by all his friends. This was God's purposes. But look at what Jesus says in verse 31. Simon, Simon. So Simon is Peter. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Um, what Jesus says is that you're going to fail me. You're going to sin against me. And I'm going to turn it for good. I'm going to take the, your sins, your failures, and I'm actually going to use them for good so that you're able to uh, to strengthen my brothers And so that Peter's sin actually becomes a part of God's sovereign will in his life. Peter's rejection, a denial of Jesus becomes, because now the guy who's going to lead the church is not some self-confident, proud, religious guy. Here's a guy who denied Jesus, and he becomes a leader of the church, and he says, he's deeply humbled by it. And he says, and Jesus forgave me. And uh, even though I denied him, at the point he needed me to the most, I denied him. And now he's being prepared to be the kind of leader that God wants. is someone that loves, uh, someone that's been humbled and someone who's experienced God's grace. And that God is even using Peter's failure for, his, for Peter's own good. Let me just ask you, is that a God you can trust? A God who even takes your failures and uses them uh, for your good? Is that a God you can trust? Um, and... Uh, Thomas Watson, who uh, was a great Puritan writer and, and preacher, put it this way: He says, "Better is that sin which humbles me than that duty which makes me proud. Better is that sin which humbles me than that duty which makes me proud. Better is it's the sin that throws me into the arms of Jesus than the duty, the good deeds that I do that make me think I don't need God in my life. That's amazing." God uses our sins to draw him close to him, to trust him more, to know the gospel more. Now, some of you say, okay, obviously that's not true for everyone, right? Not all sins work out good for people, right? Uh, And, uh, you know, look at Judas. Judas' sin didn't work out good for him. It worked out good for Peter. What's the difference between them? You know, actually, over the last three years that they've been with Jesus... There was no indication that any of the disciples saw that Judas was a bad guy. You know, when, uh, when they were at the table together and they're having the Lord's Supper and Jesus says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. All of them look at each other and they say, hey, who's, who's it going to be? I, you know, they didn't say, oh, we all know who the, you know, the black sheep is in the group. Uh, they didn't know. They said, is it me? Is it you? Who is it? They look I, almost identical, Oh, no, I'm back on. There we go. Sorry. And um, they look almost identical. And and Jesus confronts both of them as both of them are sinning, right? In verse uh, 48, uh, Jesus says to Judas, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? He's giving Judas an opportunity to repent, to change his mind. And, he does, and the same thing happens with Peter. Uh, but Peter, uh, verse 60, it says, but Peter said, Man, I do not know where you, what you are talking about. This is his third denial. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And it says this great line, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. After Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus looked him right in the eyes. stand in one place now. Um, so Jesus confronts both of them, right? And says, look, you're sinning. What are you going to do? What's the difference between them? The key is in verse 62. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter wept. Judas didn't weep. And it's when we weep over our sin, when we're broken, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when, we, why, why, why did Peter weep? Because deep down, he really loved Jesus. And let me just say that about many of you. Many of you feel like there's so many sins in your life that are just overcoming you. And they are repeating over and over. And it seems like failure after failure after failure. But you're weeping over them. They they break you up. Why is that? It's because at the core of who you are, God has given you a new heart that you really do love Jesus. You really do love him. And the Bible says that even the sins... ...of those who love him... ...will be turned around and used for good. And... uh, ...and... ...that's how amazing God is. That he is so good... ...that he even takes the evil in the world... ...and he bends it for his purposes... uh, ...to make good out of it. To make an even greater story to give him more glory. And so first of all... ...this is the main thing I wanted to focus on... ...is that our life in the will of God... ...looks like trusting in the sovereignty... uh, ...God's sovereign will... And I'll just tell you, you know, for many of you here, many of you would say, you know, if God had told me 10 or 20 years ago the will that he had for my life, the things I was going to go through, (laughs) I wouldn't have wanted to know it. I would have been scared to death (laughs) that he said I was going to go through all those things, and I would have run the other way. I wouldn't have wanted the will that he had for me. But now that I've been through it, I've seen what it's done in my life. I see what he's taught me. I see how the hard things God has used them to shape me and to make me more like Christ and uh and that's why he doesn't tell you, probably, but he is working good for you, and he wants you to trust him okay but second, the Bible doesn't tell us to just kind of you know totally let go, let god uh we have no involvement, we have no responsibility in this, and this leads to the second point uh that God calls us to obedience to his revealed will now something that's really interesting in, in here is um That there are some commandments. You know, this is a passage where Jesus is saying, uh, you know, all these things are uh, going according to God's plan. God's predetermined all these things. You know, you can't change anything. And yet Jesus says in verse 40 to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he says again in verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Two times in an episode, this, God's already planned all this, and Jesus is saying, you should pray. And uh, probably, you know, those seem very opposite, right? God has planned everything, but he wants us to pray and to ask him, uh, ask him uh, uh, to t- make our needs known to God and ask him how we want things to work out. And you see this even with Jesus. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, um, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written has its fulfillment. So Peter, Jesus says, this is, this is in the scripture, we can't change anything. And then what does he do in verse 42? He prays, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And so Jesus simultaneously is trusting in the sovereign will of God and saying, this is how God's written it. This is how God's plan it. And yet he's praying for different. He's praying for change. He's praying for God to have a different path. How do these things work together? Why would we pray if God has or already orchestrated all things? Well, let me just suggest uh, three things briefly. First of all, we pray because our father wants us to be real with him. Our father wants us to be real with him. You see that here. That before Jesus moves to thy will be done, you know, I'm willing, whatever you say, God, I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to do it before he moves to that. He first tells God his heart and he says, is there any way that this can pass over? I don't want this. I'm in agony. He's real with God. And there's a tendency where we can get where we can say, well, God's already orchestrated all things. This is God's will. And we don't even tell God our own humanity, our own emotions, our fear, our, our frustration with God. And God wants us to tell him those things. He's our father. And so God gives us prayer so that we'll tell him these things. But also, we pray because Jesus is praying for us. Um, You know, Jesus tells his disciples that they should pray so that they don't enter into temptation. But look at what he says in verse 31. This is a great little verse. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. You see that word you there? That's plural. That's y'all. Okay. Satan demanded to have y'all, the whole group. And then he switches to singular, and he says, but I have prayed for you that you may not fail. He picks out Peter as an individual and says, I'm praying for you that you won't fail. And that even though, even within God, even the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has his sovereign will, there's prayers happening. uh, Jesus is praying for you individually. And so that before he even calls you to pray, he is praying for you. And so if Jesus is praying, we should pray also. But lastly, I think we should pray because you should pray because you have the Spirit of God in you. And, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that um, we want God to tell us what his secret plan for our life is. And it turns out uh, that there are some things he's told us about our life, how we're to love him, how we're to view him, how we're to treat one another. Uh, that we should worship, that uh, what we should believe. There's some things he tells us. There's a lot of things he doesn't tell us. And among those other things that he tells us, it's not so much that he's going to tell us our, his secret will, but he wants us to tell him our desires. He wants us. So, you know, you look at this church. Uh, you know, a lot of church planners, they say, you know, God told me to plant a church, and he told me to do all these things. It, I have to be, confess it wasn't that way for me. <laughs> I do think God wanted me to plant this church. I asked people, Do you think it's a good idea for me to plant a church? And, uh, and people said, Yeah, I think it's a good idea. And there were people who wanted to be a part of it. But God never told me, You're going to plant a church. It's gonna, this is how it's going to go. I didn't know if I was going to have five people in, uh, in my uh, living room for, for 10 years or if I was going to, uh, uh, or, you know, we're going to have a building like this. I had no idea what the plan was. What God wanted me to do is to say, Look, there's uh, Bellingham needs a church, plant a church here, bring people together. He wanted me to tell him my desires. And it's through that, that he's brought it about. And so here is this, uh, this is what God calls us for is to study his revealed will and say, Lord, look at what you want. Peace in the world. You want, you say you desire all people to be saved. Uh, you want people worshiping you and people in truth. Then bring people together, do those things. And for us to dream and to desire, and so it's these two things that uh, Jesus brings together, the sovereign will of God that we trust in, that God is working all things for good, and there, there are things that, are gonna, that we don't understand that will happen in our life, but we know that our Father, uh, Father's care is upon us. And yet we study his revealed will and to see what his heart is, and, we, and what prayer does is it brings these two things together. And we see that here in our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father... These are challenging words for us. Uh, we, we don't understand them. You, we don't understand you. We can't comprehend your ways. But you've shown us again and again in your word in our lives that you are good and that we can trust you. Give us hearts to trust you. Give us hearts to believe that uh, you do work for good um, all things for those who love, to those who love you. Help us to trust in your sovereign will, to love your revealed will, and teach us to pray that you do want to know our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.